Greetings friends and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker. I'm the host of this podcast, which is produced by Mediagratii.org. To find out more about it, you can go to Mediagratii.org slash podcasts, where you can also sign up for a weekly newsletter, which contains a link to the sermon that we're looking at. If you'd like to look more or less day by day, you can find us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, where we do quotes from our daily sermons. The aim of our reading scheme is for those who are willing and able to read through Spurgeon's sermons at the rate of one a day. Recognising that not everyone is willing or able to do that, we also feature one sermon each week, taking a representative sample of the output of a man often known as the Prince of Preachers, a man gifted to hold up Jesus Christ. So if you're listening to this, we're glad you're here. Maybe it's your first time, a particular welcome to you. Maybe you've listened to all of them so far, in which case we're very glad that you're back. Please do leave a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this, as it really does help us to spread the word, and we hope then we'll help others to hear about Christ and to learn to preach him more effectively. And that's why we are seeking to learn from Spurgeon and to hear what he has to say. We acknowledge that this is a man who's been particularly gifted by God for the work of ministry, for the public preaching of the truth. And uh, here is an interesting example of it. We'll pick up some of the way that Spurgeon approaches certain things as we make our way through the sermon. But our text for today is John chapter 1, verses 45 to 51. I'll give it as it's found in the sermon itself as printed. Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The title of the sermon is simply this, Nathaniel and the Fig Tree. And it was preached on the 20th of March, a Lord's Day morning, 1870, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle by Charles Spurgeon. He's got a reasonably developed introduction in terms of his, his regular approach. Very often we address the gospel to the chief of sinners, he begins. We believe it to be our duty to do this with the greatest frequency, for did not our Lord, when bidding his disciples to preach the good news in every place, use the words beginning at Jerusalem? Where the chief of sinners lived, there was the gospel first to be preached. But at the same time it would show great lack of observation if we regarded all mankind as being equally gross, open offenders against God. So, He's beginning to make distinctions between his uh, his hearers. Yes, there are some who are openly and transparently and perhaps shamelessly, it would seem, vile and aggressively opposed to God. But that's not always the case. 
He says that although in every case, in every situation, the carnal mind is enmity against God, yet there are influences at work which in many cases have mitigated, if not subdued, that enmity. So he's acknowledging that certainly not everyone is as bad as they might be, but he's also saying that there are certain influences which in some people have, if you like, taken the edge off the expression of their sin. It doesn't make them any less a sinner, but it does change the way in which they do sin. And he says these differences we ascribe to the fact that God has been at work in them before he actually saves them. There is such a thing, he asserts, as a preparatory work of mercy on the soul, making it ready for the yet higher work of grace, even as the ploughing comes before the sowing. So while there may be something instantaneous in the moment of regeneration, nevertheless there's a preparatory work that can take place by the Holy Spirit moving with secret energy, making the soul ready for the hour when the true light shall shine. And he says this, I believe that in our congregations there are many persons who have been mercifully restrained from the grosser vices and exhibit everything that is pure and excellent in moral character. Persons who are not maliciously opposed to the gospel, who are ready enough to receive it if they did but understand it, who are even anxious to be saved by Jesus Christ and have a reverence for his name, though as yet it is an ignorant reverence. They know so little of the Redeemer that they are not able to find rest in him. But this slenderness or littleness of knowledge is the only thing that holds them back from faith in him. They are willing enough to obey if they understood the command. If they had but a clear apprehension of our Lord's person and work, they would cheerfully accept him as their Lord and God. I have great hopes that the Lord of love may guide the word which is now to be spoken, so that it may find out such persons and may make manifest the Lord's secretly chosen ones, those prisoners of hope who pine for liberty but know not that the Son can make them free. O captive soul, abhorring the chains of sin, thy day of liberty is come, the Lord, the liberator, who looseth the prisoners, is come at this very hour to snap thy bonds. So Spurgeon is uh, distinguishing then between these at least two different types of people at this point. He's not saying these are the only two different types, but he's saying there are some who are aggressively antagonistic to God and his gospel. And there are others in whom God, by his mercy, has been restraining the outbreakings of their own sinful hearts and perhaps uh, beginning to prepare them for the reception of Jesus Christ. And this is the Nathaniel man. This is the Nathaniel-like individual. And so he's going to begin by saying a few words concerning Nathaniel himself. And he's picking it straight up from the text. First of all, he was a guileless man, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. He was a straightforward man, childlike, simple-hearted, transparent as glass, says Spurgeon. He was not one of those fools who believe everything, but on the other hand, he was not of that other sort of fools so much admired in these days who believe nothing, but who find it necessary to doubt the most self-evident truth in order to maintain their credit for profound philosophy. These men are, are so determined to be thought of as thinkers that they stop thinking altogether and still boast in their intellect. No, he says, Nathaniel was neither credulous on the one hand nor mistrustful on the other. He didn't believe everything and he didn't believe nothing. He was honestly ready to yield to the force of truth. He was willing to receive testimony and to be swayed by evidence. 
He was not suspicious because he was not a man who himself would be suspected. He was true-hearted and straightforward, a plain dealer and a plain speaker. So he's a straightforward fellow. And then he was an earnest seeker. Philip went to him because he thought that he would be interested in this wonderful news. What a hopeful state of heart is yours then, my dear hearer, says Spurgeon, if you are now honestly desirous to know the truth and intensely anxious to be saved by it. Here again is part of that preparatory influence of the Holy Spirit. He's given you an appetite to know Christ, to know the truth. Now, the other side of that is that Nathaniel was ignorant up to a certain point. Not of Moses and the prophets, he'd been taught those as a, as a Jewish man, but he knew not that Christ had actually come. These uninstructed ones, says Spurgeon, may be Bible readers in our day, They may be gospel hearers, but as yet they may not have been able to grasp the great truth that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. They may never have seen what it is for Christ to stand in the sinner's place and for that sinner by an act of trust to obtain the blessings which spring out of a substitutionary sacrifice. So you see how he's moving here from Nathaniel's experience to ours. Nathaniel was a guileless man. Can you not just be straightforward when you're hearing the gospel? Nathaniel was an earnest seeker. Has God put in your heart a desire to know his truth? Nathaniel was an ignorant man on his own terms, in his own day, and there are many such in our own context. In addition to this, he says, Nathaniel was prejudiced, or at least somewhat prejudiced. He was suspicious about Nazareth itself. Not generally suspicious, but he knew Nazareth And it was not a place with the best of reputations. So Philip, he says, Spurgeon now, was a young convert and he'd made a mistake. He'd only found Jesus the day before and his natural instinct, as it is, says Spurgeon, with every truly gracious soul, is to try and tell out the blessed things of Christ. So Philip went to tell Nathaniel and made some errors as he did so. And Spurgeon says, that's okay. Dear souls, if you know only a little about Christ, and if you would make a great many mistakes in telling out that little, yet do not hold it in, for God will overlook the errors and bless the truth. And that's what Philip was trying to do. He said, we found Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, but wasn't actually correct. He was not Jesus of Nazareth at all. He was the Lord of Bethlehem. He dwelt at Nazareth. Now, I actually think that Spurgeon's being a bit hard on Philip here. Um... I think that our Lord does show himself as Jesus of Nazareth. When he says he's the son of Joseph, we do know that he's the, if you will, the foster son of Joseph, that uh, he's the reputed son, but in truth, the son of the highest. So Philip is giving to our Lord these, these common titles. Yes, we say that he hasn't plumbed the depths of theology. He's not speaking with the utmost accuracy. I still think Spurgeon may be over-egging his confusion a little bit, but his point is a good one, that the imperfections of our ministry do not prevent God's saving souls by us. He uses two examples, John Wesley preaching most earnestly one view of the gospel, an Arminian one, William William Huntingdon preaching quite another view of it, a much uh, higher one, a higher Calvinism, uh, uh, an unhealthy Calvinism. The two men, he says, would have had a holy horror of each other and censured each other most conscientiously. Yet no rational man dare say that souls were not saved under John Wesley or under William Huntingdon either, for God blessed them both. 
Both ministers were faulty, but both were sincere, and both were made useful. And so it is with all our testimonies. They are all imperfect, full of exaggerations of one truth and misapprehensions of another. But as long as we witness to the true Christ foretold by Moses and the prophets, our mistakes shall be forgiven, and God will bless our ministry despite every flaw. There's a great encouragement for us when we think we don't know enough or don't speak well enough. We should so state the gospel, says Spurgeon, that if men be offended by it, it shall be the gospel which offends them and not our way of putting it. It may be that you, my friend, are a little prejudiced against Christ's holy gospel because of the imperfect character of a religious acquaintance or the rough manners of a certain minister. But I trust you will not allow such things to bias you. I hope that, being candid and honest, you will come and see Jesus for yourself. So Spurgeon does this here, and he does it a few times in this sermon. He speaks individually. He speaks in in that uh, second person singular. You, my friend, are a little prejudiced against Christ's holy gospel. And he does this direct address on a number of occasions. But he's got one more thing to say about Nathaniel. A guileless man, an earnest seeker, ignorant in measure, prejudiced to some extent, but godly and sincere as far as he had light. Not yet a believer in Jesus, but still an Israelite indeed. Not a mocker of God as the Pharisees were in their merely outward worshipper, but a man seeking after the God of heaven. And so he says, I trust with you, dear hearer, that direct address again. You may not yet have found peace, but you do pray. You are desirous of being saved. You do not wish to be a hypocrite. You dread falling into formality. You pray that if you become a Christian, you'd be a Christian indeed. And those are the kinds of people, says Spurgeon, that I am speaking to this morning. If that's you, I am speaking to you. So, Really interesting the way then that he he sets up his particular target, identifies him, connects Nathaniel in the biblical narrative to the kinds of people that he's addressing, and then really goes for the jugular, not in an aggressive way, but in a very personal, even intimate way. So we've seen Nathaniel then, and Spurgeon wants us to move on secondly to Nathaniel's sight of Jesus. And he's just got a couple of brief comments here. The first is that he was candid enough to investigate the claims of Messiah. Beloved friend to whom I have already spoken, there's the direct address again. If you, it's very singular, it's very personal, if you have any prejudice against the true gospel of Jesus Christ, whether it be occasioned by your birth and education or previous profession of some other faith, be honest enough to give the gospel of Jesus Christ a fair hearing. Whatever you've heard before, whatever anybody's told you, wherever you've come from, wherever you think you're going, whoever you think you you believe or whatever you think you believe, just listen to what the good news about Christ is. Spurgeon says you've got it in this chapel. You can read it in these pages, but thoroughly examine it. Be honest, be earnest, weigh it up. Think about what you're hearing. For it is urging people to look these things over carefully in the hopeful anticipation that there'll be people who have already heard uh, already heard something or, or in whom the Holy Spirit has been at work in their hearts. So he says, my honest friend, give to the gospel of salvation by faith in the precious blood of Jesus a fair hearing and we are not afraid of the result. 
but as well as that candid investigation, notice Nathaniel's great activity of heart. Come and see, he was told, and he did. And so he says, if grace has ever come to you, it will arouse you from lethargy and lead you to go to Christ. And you will be most earnest with all the activity of your spirit to search for him as for hid treasure. Here again is that work of the Holy Spirit before someone is born again, stirring them up to interest, to engagement, to consideration. Some of you, he says, I'm afraid you live in darkness because you're expecting something different some kind of physical manifestation. You hope for a vivid dream or some strange feeling in your flesh or some very remarkable occurrence in your family, except you see signs and wonders you will not believe. Oh no, he says, but a saving sight of Christ is another matter altogether. Truth must impress your mental faculties, enlighten your understanding and win your affections. So if you're to look to Christ, look with honesty, with open eyes and with eager souls. But the third thing, a far greater matter which demands our attention, is Christ's sight of Nathaniel. And this is where the sermon becomes really quite interesting, on uh, not just in terms of our, our desire to know Christ for ourselves, but the way Spurgeon actually now portrays Nathaniel. So Christ called him an Israelite indeed. He read Nathaniel's heart, and Spurgeon suggests that this is a, a divine understanding. This is the God-man who's penetrating into the depths of Nathaniel's soul. He tells us that between Christ and Nathaniel, there was a common knowledge connected with a particular fig tree, which we cannot now hope to discover. So this is where the Lord says, before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree and I saw you. Now, he says, the moment our Lord mentioned that hallowed spot, its remembrances were to Nathaniel so secret and so sacred that he felt that the omniscient one was before him. Now, now the Christ, now the Lord Jesus is, is unpeeling certain parts of Nathaniel's soul. He'd seen this Israelite indeed under the fig tree. Now, what was Nathaniel doing under the fig tree? Spurgeon basically says, we really haven't got any idea, but he's going to suggest a few things anyway. Is this legitimate? I think you could argue that back and forth. What Spurgeon is doing here, I would call it reading into the white spaces. It's a thoughtful surmise. He's not just making it up and he's not suggesting he knows all the answers, but he's saying it could have been this, it could have been this, it could have been this, and trying to offer some credible and some legitimate suggestions as to the kinds of things that might have been going on in Nathaniel's heart and mind when he was sitting away under that fig tree. Here are his suggestions. He may have been, as certain people would have been in that context, giving themselves a particular space and place for prayer, making confession of sin. He was aware of his transgressions. And perhaps when the Lord said to him, I saw you under the fig tree, it brought to his mind how he'd poured out his broken heart and his contrite spirit, confessing sins unknown to all but God. It's also possible that in addition to his confession, he'd made a deliberate investigation of his own heart because, says Spurgeon, good men generally mingle with their confessions self-examination. 
or he could have been engaged in very earnest prayer. Now, Spurgeon keeps mentioning these things as possibilities. They seem to get a little bit more definite as he talks about them. And and it's an interesting combination or an interesting approach, because on the one hand, he's saying, I don't know, and I'm making suggestions. But on the other, he, if you like, he concretizes these things. He, he really brings them into being. And, and I think he's doing this, again, because of that direct mode of address. He's trying to suggest some of the things that he would hope an awakened soul might have been about in their private moments. And he's again trying to make that connection with the men and women in front of him whom he hopes and prays are in a similar condition to Nathaniel. So confession of sin, investigation of your own heart, earnest prayer. Is this where uh, Nathaniel prayed to the Lord like Jacob did in Peniel, where he'd wrestle till the break of day? And is this helping us to understand this Israelite indeed language? Maybe he'd made a vow there that if the Lord would bless him, would show him some sign and token for good, he would be the Lord's. Or perhaps there he'd enjoyed communion with God. There was, Spurgeon talks about a couple of places where he'd known real sweet closeness to the Lord God of heaven. And, and the connection here is this idea that Nathaniel is an Israelite indeed. And, and Spurgeon a few times here is trying to plug this in to Jacob's experience and say, is that what's holding this together? Is the Lord Jesus seeing in Nathaniel something in his heart dealings with him under that fig tree that, that identifies him as a true Israelite, as a, a man like Jacob at his best, I think we should add. So he asks, have we not sometimes had special festivals when the Lord Jesus has broached the spiced wine of his pomegranate, when our joy has been almost too much for the frail body to endure, for our joyous spirit like a sharp sword has well nigh cut through its scabbard? Ah, it's sweetly true. He has baptised us in the fire of his love and we shall forever remember those secret spots, those dear occasions. And what's the point? What's he trying to draw out? that the Lord had seen Nathanael in his previous engagements before Nathanael actually ever became a believer in the Lord Jesus. And Spurgeon draws out another encouragement then for those men and women, boys and girls, who may have been seeking after Christ without yet having come to Christ. Sincerely seeking to be set right and to know the truth, they fully perceived in all their seekings and desirings by the God of grace. When you weep over your ignorance, Jesus sees the tear. When you groan because you cannot find peace in your soul, Jesus hears that groan. Never true heart seeks Christ without Christ's being well aware of it. And so he says, even today, before the minister's voice spoke to you, when you were under that fig tree, when you were by that bedside, when you were in that inner chamber, when you were down in that saw pit, when you were in the hayloft, when you were walking behind the hedge in the field. Notice again, he's building the bridges between Nathaniel's experience and the experience of his own hearers. He says, wherever you were and you were wondering about your soul and you were seeking after the Lord and you were wondering how you would find peace of conscience and you're asking God to draw near to you. Jesus saw you. He knew your desires. He read your longings and he saw you through and through. 
Now, the fourth thing, again, notice that in this sermon, Spurgeon hasn't announced these five headings that he's got, but he is just working through them. So you've got this sort of narrative progress, uh, unfolding the sermon rather than announcing it up front. And what he wants you to see fourthly is Nathaniel's faith. And again, he's quite brief because it's a five-pointer, not a three-pointer. These are not so fully developed in in terms of their length. Uh, But he says here again, I'm just going over some of the same ground, but from a slightly different angle. I want you to see what Nathaniel's faith was grounded on. He cheerfully accepted this Jesus as the Messiah because Jesus had revealed to him something of his, his divine knowledge. And he says, Christ often did this, did it with the Samaritan woman. You've had five husbands and the one whom you have now is not your husband. And and she grasped that this man knows my soul. Here again is the bridge from Nathaniel to us. The fact is that to this very day, the discovery of the thoughts of men's hearts by the gospel is still a very potent means in the hands of the Holy Ghost of convincing them of the truth of the gospel. How often have I heard inquirers say, it seemed to me, sir, as if that sermon were meant for me. There were points in it that were so exactly like myself that I felt sure someone had told the preacher about me and there were words and sentences so particularly, so peculiarly descriptive of my private thought that I was sure no one but God knew of them. I perceived that God was in the gospel, speaking to my soul. Yes, says Spurgeon, and it always will be so. Now, I think a good number of preachers hear those kinds of things. Interestingly, often from God's people, those who are already Christians, that the the word has been pressed into their consciences because of its precision, its accuracy. But here Spurgeon says that's happening with people who aren't yet converted. The gospel is revealing their secrets. And that itself ought to convince you, he says, that the gospel is divine since its teachings lay bare the heart and its remedies touch every spiritual disease. So it's clear what Nathaniel's faith was grounded on, a recognition that in Jesus of Nazareth he was dealing with true God. Then his faith was clear and comprehensive in its character. He accepted Jesus at once as the Son of God. He was divine to him and he adored him. He accepted him as once as the King of Israel, a royal person, and he rendered him all his homage. May you and I receive Jesus Christ in this way as a real man, but yet certainly God, despised and rejected, yes, but anointed above his brothers, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then Nathaniel's faith was quick, unreserved and decisive. It was not at all diluted. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. There's a definition here. There's an absoluteness here. Delay in believing dishonors the Lord Jesus. And then the last point, and we need to press on to notice Nathaniel's aftersight. Some people want to see all that there is in Christianity before they can believe in Jesus. They need to go to the the infant school or the kindergarten, though, before they shout for a degree at the university. He puts it this way. Many want to know the ninth of Romans before they've read the third of John. They want to plumb the depths of scripture before they've grasped its saving beauty. They're all for understanding great mysteries, but they've yet to understand that primary simplicity, believe and live. 
But those who are wiser, like Nathaniel, are content to believe at first what they are able to perceive, namely that Christ is the Son of God and the King of Israel. And those who grasp with that Nathaniel-like faith what they can see, they will be given more. And that's what the Christ offers to Nathaniel. He gives a promise that he was going to have Israel's vision because he was an Israelite indeed. And again, there's that that brilliant connection. If he's an Israelite indeed, and there's something in his behavior under the fig tree that connects him in some way with the spirit of Jacob at his best, then he's going to see something of what Jacob saw. And what did Jacob see? He saw the ladder upon which angels ascended and descended. And that's what Nathaniel shall see. Christ Jesus as the communication between an opened heaven and a blessed earth and the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So, Spurgeon says, Nathaniel had owned Jesus as the Son of God. Here he's told that he shall see him in his glory as the true Son of Man. Believe then, says Spurgeon, as far as you know Christ and you shall know more of him. Open your eyes to the candlelight of the law and you shall soon behold the sunlight of the gospel. And then he said the promise would be fulfilled, not just when Nathaniel saw something of the glory of Jesus Christ as the mediator between God and men, as the, the, the one who was going to close the gap between heaven and earth, but he would also see the providence of God under the rule of Christ, ordering all things for the good of the church. So do not go fretting to your homes when you see what's going on in the world around you, complaining, well, there are new doctrines springing up and new gods that our fathers did not know and ministers are slipping aside from the faith and bad days have fallen upon the church and Romanism is coming up and infidelity with it. All this may be true, but it doesn't matter one fig for the great end that God has in view. In other words, Nathaniel is going to see, and so can we, that Christ has all things in his hand. Angels descend, but they as much do the will of God as those which ascend. Some events seem disastrous, some seem calamitous, but they will all prove to be for the best. And until the crown shall come upon the head of him who was separated from his brothers, and all the glory shall roll in waves of mighty song at the foot of his throne, may you and I continue to see this great sight more and more clearly. Until the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the trump of the archangel and the voice of God, and once for all shall we see heaven and earth blended, may we continue to see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is where Spurgeon reaches his his high point. We want you to see these things. So the whole sermon then, just by way of brief conclusion, is this sustained appeal to those in whom the Holy Spirit may have already been in measure at work, restraining their sin, stirring up an appetite for Jesus Christ. It's marked by this personal appeal, this second person singular, this you, you, you. It's remarkable for the way that Spurgeon persistently tries to build bridges between the experience of Nathaniel and the experience of the people to whom he is speaking. And it rises then to this uh, particular climax as he holds before us Jesus Christ as the one mediator between God and men. The, the one ladder between heaven and earth upon whom the angels both go up and down. I hope that there's something there for your soul 
especially perhaps if you're in Nathaniel's state. I hope there's something there for your encouragement if you're a believer, especially if you're thinking, well, I may not be some great evangelist, but I can at least say something about my God and Saviour. And I hope there's something there for you if you're a preacher, as you think what it is to, to set Christ forth and to wrestle with souls and to come close to them and to bring the text of Scripture to bear upon the hearts of the men and women and children who sit in front of us as we make Jesus Christ known. Well, thank you again for listening. Do join us again next week, sermons 927 through to 933, and our featured sermon is 927, simply entitled Martha and Mary from Luke's Gospel and Chapter 10. Join us then if you can. We hope that God will bless you in the meantime. <laughs>